I'm Bonnie Lin, Director of the China Power Project and Senior Fellow for Asian Security at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. In this episode of the China Power Podcast, we're discussing China's relationship with Pakistan. How has the partnership between the two countries evolved over time? How does each country benefit from the relationship, and where might it head next? Here to discuss this and more is Dr. Samir Lawani, senior expert on South Asia at the U.S. Institute of Peace. He is also a non-resident senior fellow with the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments. From 2015 to 2022, Dr. Lawani was a senior fellow for Asia Strategy and the director of the South Asia Program at the Stimson Center. He has also spent time as an adjunct professor at George Washington University's Elliott School of International Affairs, and as a Stanton Nuclear Security Postdoctoral Fellow at the Rand Corporation. Samir, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me on the pod. So the topic of our discussion today is China's relationship with Pakistan. For those who might not be familiar with this bilateral relationship, which is quite important, could you give us a little bit of background on the China-Pakistan relationship? How does each country benefit from it, and how has this relationship evolved over time? Sure. Yeah. So I, I think it's been mutually beneficial, but perhaps、uh, a little asymmetric. So Pakistan has been China has been a source of political support, diplomatic cover,、uh, military capability enhancements, and I'd say in the last decade,、uh, significant financial support. So on the diplomatic front, China's position as a P5 country in the UN. Uh, has been able to protect Pakistan on votes, particularly on、um, issues of Kashmir、uh, and its disputed territory with India. It's protected Pakistan on UN votes to blacklist Pakistan's militant proxies. Even in the Financial Action Task Force, China has sort of played a buffering role、uh, from preventing Pakistan from going to blacklist. Economically, over the last decade, China was planning to invest somewhere between 46 to 62 billion dollars in Pakistan. I think the actual estimation of what what really happened was something closer to 25 billion, but still nothing to sniff at. And then strategically, this is sort of I think where the most consequential, where China has helped Pakistan's nuclear program really take off.、Uh, it helped in uranium enrichment, in weapons design, and in missile capabilities. And my current area of research is actually looking at how China is helping to build up Pakistan's conventional capabilities, so、uh, that the more more usable conventional capabilities that Are able to enhance、uh, Pakistan's ability to compete with India、uh, and interoperate with China. So, for the reverse, for for China's benefit, I mean, Pakistan has been a strategic asset, although perhaps not nearly as much as China has been for Pakistan. But you know, Pakistan's enhanced capability and existence and its its behavior towards India has really tied down arrival of China's in the Asian subcontinent. And Pakistan only did this by、uh, initiating a number of conflicts, but also by ceding some, ceding its claim over some strategic disputed territory in in the Kashmir region, so the Aksai Chin region, is ceded to China, ceded its claims to China, and so that has also really forced India to reckon with its continental border. Certainly, in the 1970s, Pakistan was a critical bridge for China to the West. It helped broker. Nixon's visit to China and and Kissinger's secret visit to China initially、uh, early on, and then again in the last couple of decades, Pakistan's been a, a, an important counterterrorism intelligence partner,、uh, and maybe even a testbed for some of China's BRI、uh, economic ambitions and connectivity plans. Samir, you mentioned that 
Pakistan has helped initiate a number of conflicts against India, uh, with India a, a critical rival of China's. Have you seen that in the recent couple of years? Because as you know, China, India has had multiple tensions on the border in the recent years. Has Pakistan done anything specifically either before or after those incidents? That's a great question. So actually, quite the opposite. I think in the the Gawan crisis in 2020, Pakistan seemed to go out of its way to make it clear that it was not doing anything on the border, even as uh, things were really heating up on the line of actual control between China and India. And there were some rumors about in, uh, Pakistan mobilizing some air units or, or China even making use of some air bases. And Pakistan actively, both in public and private channels, tried to dispel that because it didn't want to get uh, entrapped or embroiled in, in that conflict. And then six months later, it returned to a ceasefire agreement with India uh, that has held surprisingly for the last two years. So yes, in recent years, it's actually it's worth noting that Pakistan has tried not to make this a three-front challenge or two-front challenge for India. And is it because, like you mentioned, there is concern that Pakistan might be dragged in during times where it doesn't want to? Or is it because they have other calculations or interests? It's hard to read the reasoning behind it. It's unclear to me if China didn't want Pakistan to stir anything up to to escalate tensions, if Pakistan itself was was really risk-averse during that period, especially when it was facing a lot of pressure from the United States and the international community economically, financially, and in terms of sort of what it was doing in Afghanistan. But I think in general, Pakistan, maybe that's the best explanation is that Pakistan has been under tremendous duress for a number of years. And it's really acute today where it has these twin crises of an economic crisis and a resumption of terrorism, cross-border terrorism coming from Afghanistan by militant proxies that have taken safe harbor there. And that, I think, is probably what focuses Pakistan to try to avoid creating new tensions um, uh, currently on the border. But that doesn't preclude the possibility of sort of a strategic challenge to India that might be in coordination with China in the future. And the twin challenge that you mentioned, both the economic crisis and dealing with terrorism from Afghanistan, those are all issues that China could help deal with, given China's economic power, but also China's focus on dealing with Afghanistan since the U.S. withdrawal. That's right. I think China could probably do more in the economic domain to a degree. I mean, it certainly has been providing short-term loans in order to stabilize the balance of payments crisis or prevent a balance of payments crisis in, in Pakistan. And a lot of debt and sort of debt servicing that's, uh, I think about 60% of uh, Pakistan's debt servicing this year is owed to China. So there are ways in which China can mitigate that pressure but of course, there will be a cost, and there'll be some there'll be some unknown sort of cost in the future potentially. On the CT side, I think that that's a problem of Pakistan's own making, and I'm not sure how much China can do. In his, the last time Pakistan really faced this acute terrorism crisis from about 2007-2014, it had U.S. Uh, military support, intelligence coordination, targeting, drone targeting that took out a lot of these sort of militant leadership strongholds, and it doesn't have that today. So I think in that situation, Pakistan might be really self-reliant. Great. Thank you. I do want to pick apart uh, and go into a little bit more detail on the China-Pakistan military relationship. But before that, could you talk a little bit about why the China-Pakistan relationship is so important? Because I feel like when most of us look at 
China's relationship with its uh, key partners in the region. Pakistan usually isn't, you know, near the top of that list, right? So there's a lot of focus on Russia. There's a lot of focus on North Korea, increasing focus on Iran. I haven't seen people talk too much about Pakistan. Why is this relationship important? So I think the thing that grabs, that gets my attention is that if I'm correct in my assessment that this military relationship is really deepening, and we can get into that later, if it's really getting accelerating and deepening, then when you aggregate the power of two nuclear armed countries that are linked by land and connected to both Pacific and Indian Oceans, then you have an extremely formidable power on the Eurasian landmass. And I think ultimately it's a real challenge to the U.S.'s Indo-Pacific strategy because it provides China access points around what I think might be kind of a, a counterbalancing effort by led by the United States. And is there also an Islamic dimension of it? Because I, if I recall correctly, Pakistan was one of the helped uh, usher in China, some of the key meetings that China has had with uh, Muslim countries. Yeah, on this element, I think for a while Pakistan was a, a critical conduit to the Muslim world. But I think at this point, it seems to me China has a number of other relationship inequities that have, it's developed on its own in the Middle East. So the most recent brokering of some sort of agreement between Saudi Arabia and Iran suggests that China has sort of an ability to to engage them independently of Pakistan. But, you know, one thing that's noteworthy is Pakistan's very explicit silence on the Uyghur issue. And I'm not sure if that's a benefit to China, but certainly Pakistan has not crossed that line where it's raised that issue in public and even defended its position very vocally in public as to why it does not raise that publicly with China. I think that that sort of is an indicator of how close that relationship is. Thank you. Now let's move to the China-Pakistan military relationship. You recently released a report on this topic, and it was a very in-depth report. I highly recommend all my listeners take a look at the report. But maybe you could share with us what are some of the key takeaways from your report and some of your main findings. Yeah, thanks for that plug. So I think there are maybe three big takeaways. The first is that I think China has tremendous influence and leverage because of the arms relationship with Pakistan, because it's most it's, it's Pakistan's most important defense partner since the end of the Cold War. And it's become like the leading supplier of Pakistan's conventional weapons, including higher-end offensive strike capabilities. The second point is that I think China and Pakistani militaries are increasingly interoperable. And so when you look at measures of China's military diplomacy uh, with the world, Pakistan is quantitatively and even qualitatively rivaling China's military relationship with Russia. Now, um, this is distinct from the leader-to-leader relationship, which clearly with Xi Jinping recently visiting President Putin in Russia, it sort of underscores sort of that leader equation that's extremely close. But I'd say at the military-to-military level, the China and Pakistan militaries have accelerated the tempo of joint exercises, which are growing in complexity and interoperability over time. And and by some estimations, it sort of might be some of the, the densest uh, kind of military exercises that China conducts with an, with an outside power. And then I think the third point of the report is to really sort of underscore the prospects for Chinese power projection and, and military power projection over the Indian Ocean are growing, uh, particularly from Pakistan's western coast. And I, and I think that it, it's increasingly likely and also facing fewer obstacles than maybe previously thought. China has 
been basing, or, or rather, Chinese basing has meaningful support within Pakistan strategic circles. I think that's something the report tries to, to showcase. And the material obstacles to upgrading naval access in a wartime contingency seem to be actually quite surmountable engineering problems that China has solved, for example, in the Spratly Islands and the South China Sea. And so the, the one sort of major political obstacle, which is a potential Chinese concern about antagonizing India, also appears to be diminishing over time just by the very fact that Beijing seems to be very comfortable militarily antagonizing India every couple of years on the line of actual control. So I think that the sort of the, to sum up, the big points are about sort of the arms and influence, interoperability, and you know, basing in uh, power projection prospects with Pakistan. In terms of the interoperability and military exercises, you mentioned that China, if I heard it correctly, engages in some of the most complex operations and military exercises with Pakistan compared to other countries that it exercises with. One thing that that has elevated uh, the importance of Russia, Iran, and to some extent North Korea, not so much on the military side, because we haven't really seen China exercise with North Korea as much. But it has been the China's military exercise with Russia and Iran at the same time, trilateral joint exercise, and sometimes even involving a fourth country. Have you seen that with Pakistan? Has China's exercise with Pakistan mainly been bilateral, or have you seen China exercise with Pakistan and other countries at the same time? That's a great question. I recall there being a joint exercise, a joint naval exercise with China and Russia. I can't quite recall uh, off the top of my head, but I think what what I've paid close attention to is the is the named bilateral exercises that are now annual or semi annual. So I think early in in the early two two thousand ten two thousand eleven period, there were a handful of exercises that were you could say experimental. But now each service has a named exercise, and I think the one that gets the most attention is maybe the most advanced is the Shaheen Air Force exercise. And I go through that in the paper. I sort of have a pretty detailed table trying to estimate some of the properties of, of this exercise, actually based on some work that you, you Bonnie, did at RAND several years ago. So looking at the measures of complexity in that exercise. And over time, you can see that more and more of those components are being added to that annual air exercise. Uh, when you read descriptions of the, the now semi-annual naval exercise, the descriptions that are being put out in the public domain are suggesting that there are ISR and sensor networks that are feeding targeting data from a Chinese uh, ISR platform to a, a Pakistani frigate and for coming up with a targeting solution for a missile strike. So that level of interoperability seems to really be getting at least a lot of public attention. And when I talk to colleagues and you know, naval colleagues, they'll, by reading those descriptions, they say this, this seems like to be something on par with what we what we aspire to in terms of interoperability with our close allies and partners. So you know, this is all constrained by what's in the public domain. But given that, it's just me that that bilateral regimen is, is probably the most advanced element of the kind of exercises they do. And maybe because it, the bilateral relationship, military exercises is so deep and exercises are so complex, it might also actually be hard to bring on a third country if you can't operate with a third country at the same level. That could be one reason why you're not seeing as much of, of that. Right. No, that makes a lot of sense. So I did want to ask you about a key term that you use in your report, where you describe the China-Pakistan as a threshold alliance. You had just discussed the way in which China's tremendous leverage over arms, 
military exercise interoperability and bases really set the relationship apart, right? So is that what you mean by the relationship being a threshold alliance, an alliance in which China could see, could, if needed, upgrade its relationship with Pakistan to be a, one of an actual military alliance? Yeah, I think, I think you captured it nicely. I mean, this is a concept I've been playing with a little bit and, and, or, or trying to sort of develop a little bit. And I'm really drawing from the, the nuclear literature, uh, which I'm, I'm more familiar with. So in the nuclear literature, there was this concept of threshold states, uh, and it described countries that accumulated the material conditions and technical capacity to quickly transform an ostensible, peaceful nuclear program into a weapons program, should it choose to. And sometimes that condition was called nuclear latency. So I'm suggesting that China and Pakistan are, are, are building military capabilities for a military alliance without making those political commitments just yet. They have the material and technical conditions and the military interoperability of a threshold alliance to move the defense relationship, you could say, to the edge of wartime coordination, but short of writing it down and making specific mutual defense commitments. And under what conditions could you see China and Pakistan move from this threshold alliance relationship right now to a de facto alliance? You seem to suggest earlier that uh, even though the military relationship is very close, the relationship at the political levels is nowhere as close as, for example, Xi's personal relationship with Vladimir Putin. Could you talk a little bit about what factors might China need to have in place if it were to go move in the direction of a de facto alliance? Yeah, I, so I, I don't quite know what would actually cause it, but I can, I can sort of I suggest some signatures. And that's sort of what I try to do in the report is identify, you know, for example, if you started seeing China selling or just transferring J-20s to Pakistan or some sort of advanced sort of nuclear propulsion, sort of an SS, SSN system rather than just SSKs uh, that they're selling the Pakistani Navy, uh, those sort of those would be markers of of sort of a more advanced collaboration. Or if you saw, you know, joint planning or joint missions, you'll start to see that they've crossed the line that'll have some joint effects on the United States or other uh, partner countries and, and, and militaries, and then consequently have effects on their on their defense planning and defense spending. But the trigger point is is a little unclear to me, and it may be that there are decisions that are made in private. And that'll just be revealed to us through these signatures. So that's part of the part of the point is that you you have sort of the the material conditions in place, and you can flip the switch when you choose to. You know, I'll, I'll just use this moment. I, I, I was sort of drawn to um, a paper by another scholar in the field. Uh, his name is Isaac Cardin, who has done some really interesting work on uh, Chinese power projection. I had this great report on uh, Gwadar as a potential base for the PLAN. And he cites this um, unnamed PLA officer quoted in, in, in an article and describing the use, of, the military use of water and says that the food is already on the plate. We'll eat it whenever we want to. So that, to me, sort of has this turnkey suggestion to it that I think might be also representative of the broader uh, military partnership. So, Samir, when we look at when we talk about China using potential military bases in Pakistan, what are these bases? Where are they located? And what types of military bases are they? Well, I think a lot of attention gets paid to this port, Gwadar, which is on the northwestern part of Pakistan's western coastline, so much closer to Iran and to the Strait of Hormuz. But the 
PLAN, uh, the, the Chinese Navy has also paid lots of port calls to the port of Karachi, which is Pakistan's major commercial port, major commercial hub, uh, to Port Qasim, which is right next to Port of Karachi. So it's conceivable that some of these major ports, as well as some smaller ones like Omara or Gianni, could also be uh, potential sites for future uh, PLAN basing. But I think the, the reason Gwadar gets the most attention is because that's where China's commercial entities actually sort of have holdings over the ports, are doing the development there, the dredging, the pier development, the facilities around it. And so given that China has a lot more influence and leverage over sort of structuring the port to its interests and material specifications. When you look at the China-Pakistan relationship, what are some of the key challenges and opportunities you see? So I think opportunities and challenges is, is actually the right pairing because while there's been a lot of highs, there's been also a lot of disappointments, I think, on, on both sides. So China is Pakistan's call of last resort in a crisis, but it also let Pakistan down a number of times, like in the 1971 war when Pakistan lost about you know a fifth of its territory. Pakistan really was excited about the announcement of the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, but really misunderstood the whole project uh, as if sort of if it was like free money or, or investment when it turned out to be actually a lot of really unfavorable loans. And then there's there's some baggage that comes with being China's closest partner and starting to bear some costs for for Pakistan. And it's it's no picnic for China either. You know, it's been a staunch ally to Pakistan, and Pakistan has helped rehyphenate India and uh, really tie it down conventionally and, and subconventionally in the subcontinent. But it's also created an entrapment risk for China. Any moment like, a crisis could erupt between Pakistan and India uh, that can spiral out of control, and that's not in Beijing's interests either. Pakistan has provided a lot of CT cooperation with China, particularly on ETIM and, and uh, Uyghur separatists. But everyone knows that Pakistan is both the firefighter and the arsonist. And so it's, it's a source of a lot of these problems as well. So I think they they have uh, some challenges that come along with their collaboration. And so Samir, under what conditions might Pakistan allow China to use a military base located on its own territory for military operations? So I think it's first important to acknowledge that China already uses Pakistan's territory for some supporting links for power projection. So for its communications facilities and satellite ground communication, And it seems very likely that they would use Pakistan's territory for at least peacetime prepositioning of equipment, maintenance, and replenishment of uh, PLA force if it it uses Gwadar just as sort of a peacetime naval station or like logistics station. But for it to use it in uh, major military operations, I think there's two ways to look at the potential political conditions that would allow for this. One is if you look at it from Pakistan's perspective, if Pakistan starts to believe that it's in its own strategic interest to host PLA forces, knowing that that it could sort of add some deterrent value, sort of an extended deterrent value, but also would make them a target in a major major power conflict. So that could be Pakistan's calculus or how it navigates that choice. But I also, or rather, I think more importantly, the decision point really sort of lies with China. And this is something I alluded to earlier, which is I think China has accumulated a tremendous amount of leverage over Pakistan. Right, the amount of debt that Pakistan owes China, and even just the, the percentage of debt servicing this year, uh, I think is tremendous. So much of Pakistan's conventional forces are of Chinese origin, and they rely on Chinese servicing and sustainment. 
Pakistan sensors and data and networking are also all the advanced capabilities of, of Pakistan are going to rely on China, like it's satellite guidance from the Beidou network or cyber or 5G communications, which depend on Huawei systems. So I think really the question is, if, if China was asking Pakistan for a favor, just the way Marlon Brando would ask somebody for a favor in The Godfather, I, I think the question is, could, could Pakistan say no? I like that analogy. China is the godfather, right? (laughs) So in speaking of asking for favors and potential contingencies, so there's been quite a bit of consideration on how North Korea or Russia could engage in opportunistic aggression in the event of a China-Taiwan contingency. How might Pakistan respond? Is this something that uh, folks are talking about with respect to Pakistan also taking advantage of conditions to either make a move on India or elsewhere. Is there a chance, relatedly, is there any chance that Pakistan could indirectly support China in such a conflict? So I think the answer to the predation opportunism is I don't think so. But the to the second question of uh, support China, I think is quite possible. So let me let me unpack that. I think it's less likely that Pakistan will engage in outright opportunism or predation in the event of a Taiwan contingency because the U.S. is not the actor containing Pakistani ambitions. It's ultimately, it, it is India. So if the U.S. is sort of embroiled in a Pacific theater conflict, uh, I don't think that sort of gives Pakistan naturally any breathing room right away. But that said, I mean, to your second question, like if the U.S. is counting on India to play some sort of role in a Taiwan contingency, even if it's a, a secondary role like ensuring sea control or preventing PLAN uh, interdiction of U.S. Uh, vessels transiting through the Indian Ocean, then it seems plausible that China could encourage Pakistan to divert some of India's attention and resources. And I mean, Pakistan would have a number of ways to do this if, if it was so motivated. It could mobilize land forces. It could try to activate some non-state proxies, either cross-border or even within the Indian-controlled Kashmir Valley. But I also think that China is enabling Pakistan to really create a formidable submarine fleet over the next five years to a decade that could really distract a large amount of India's naval and intelligence assets. It could give, give the Indian Navy a lot of fits uh, just with sort of the eight submarine, Type 39 submarines that Pakistan is set to acquire. So I think in all those ways, yeah, Pakistan could be a huge diversion for India. And if, if the U.S. is counting on India in a Taiwan contingency, then that's a, that's a real, real challenge. Great. Thank you. So let me try to bring in a couple of other actors into this relationship. Uh, You just mentioned the United States and how Pakistan doesn't view the United States as containing it. And Pakistan has had a, how would we describe it? A, uh, sometimes a very good relationship, other times a quite poor relationship with the United States. (laughs) Yeah. Very dynamic relationship with the United States. So as as Pakistan watches India grow closer with the United States uh, through various means, including through the Quad, how do you see the China-Pakistan relationship evolving in the future? And will we, the China-Pakistan relationship necessarily be on this trajectory of becoming closer and closer as U.S.-India cooperation becomes even tighter? Yeah, I, I think there's a clear correlation between the U.S.-India defense relationship getting closer and and deeper over the last two decades and the simultaneous China-Pakistan military relationship um, also getting closer and deeper. And perhaps even you could argue the the China-Pakistan relationship has become even faster, advanced even faster as more advanced 
But I, to be honest, I'm not sure what direction the causal arrow goes. And maybe it's just more like a dialectic is like each, each side sort of sensed that there was a, a relationship that was sort of uh, starting to, to build it, it doubled down on its own partners. And so in some way, you know, there's a historic path dependence to the China Pakistan relationship that date back, dates back to the, the early sixties, whereas India and the United States, while they had some close relations in the sixties by like 1971, the Indians were pretty convinced the U.S. was an adversary when the U.S. sailed uh, the, the Enterprise, uh, USS Enterprise, and the, a carrier strike group into the Bay of Bengal uh, that was ostensibly meant to threaten or coerce uh, India during the 1971 war. So, but I think today it's pretty clear that the U.S. has made a, a pretty strong choice or a very clear choice. The U.S.-India relationship has taken on a pretty, pretty new significance. Several presidents and administrations have elevated the importance of the U.S.-India relationship, um, not only sort of in contemporary times, but uh, throughout the 21st century. So in that sense, I, I, mean, I think it's going to have an effect on what Pakistan thinks its options are. And, and maybe even uh, for China, it, it's sort of starting to have an effect on what other Asian partners can be counterbalancers to the, what could be a very formidable U.S.-India relationship. But maybe I'll say one word on the quad. I mean, I don't, I don't see an obvious link with the Quad, it, it seems plausible that you know, as the U.S. elevates allies and partners uh, through the mechanisms like the Quad, then maybe China is starting to look for offsets, and they may not be symmetrical types of alliances, but they can be used to counter uh, the U.S. network of alliances. And so maybe, maybe that is sort of what China has in mind in its relationship with with Pakistan. It doesn't need a mutual defense treaty, but a partner with some capabilities and functions that can offset what is essentially a U.S. advantage. I think one key point that you made that probably is worth unpacking a little bit more is that you said that U.S. is not an actor containing Pakistan, which sounds to me like, as for example, if we're starting to put Pakistan in the range of actors in which China is forming very close relationships with that could and could leverage to push its own purposes. So in the leagues of, for example, Russia, Iran, North Korea, the key distinction between Pakistan and them is Pakistan doesn't have the same threat perceptions from the United States, which should suggest that there might be more that the United States can do to prevent the China-Pakistan relationship from strengthening to an extent that would be harmful for U.S. interests. Well, first of all, how do you think the Biden administration do you think the Biden administration is paying enough attention to Pakistan? And if not, is there anything that we should or could be doing to make sure that even if China-Pakistan relationship strengthens and in a moment of crisis, Pakistan wouldn't necessarily choose to side with China in a potential conflict involving the United States and our allies and partners? Because as you were mentioning earlier, it's not actually clear that Pakistan wants to make that choice. And it's not clear right now that Pakistan would make that choice unless India is involved. Right. No, I think it's really important. So I, I agree with you fully that I don't think Pakistan is yet in this camp of Russia, Iran, North Korea. And I don't think it's a foregone conclusion as to where Pakistan would line up in a conflict between China and the United States. And, I, you know, Pakistan leadership, I think, is, is sincere when they say that they don't want to have to choose sides. They don't they, they don't want to sort of play, as they call it, like camp politics. They're, I think, you know, gun shy of that after some of their experiences during the Cold War. That said, as I alluded to earlier, I, I'm not sure they, they will have a choice 
because of the position that they are they have entered into structurally and sort of you know materially over the last ten plus years. But let me let me sort of address the other parts of your question. I mean, like you were asking about the Biden administration's sort of focus on Pakistan. I think it's pretty clear that it's largely uninterested in Pakistan, and probably for understandable reasons, given that you know the, a lot of the leadership in government today was there during the Obama administration really was counting on Pakistan to turn a corner in its behavior uh, towards the Taliban militant proxies. And, and I think the U.S. felt uh, really burned by Pakistan's duplicity uh, during the Afghanistan campaign. But just because you don't write them into your Indo-Pacific strategy doesn't mean that they won't have an effect on that strategy. And that's where I think it's still worth the U.S. considering how it could shape or influence that effect. I mean, I, I don't I think it's in the U.S. interest for Pakistan to not combine arms and conduct joint operations with China in a conflict, to not allow China to leverage its geography and project power in a conflict or crisis, and, and to not divert India from the role it can play in the Pacific. So those are those are interests or objectives. They're not it's not a strategy for changing Pakistan's course. And, and the truth is, I don't really have a good good understanding of sort of how you get there. But I do have a model, and I think it's worth thinking about this this model, this analog. And the analog I've been thinking a lot about is from the Cold War is Tito's Yugoslavia, which leaned very heavily towards USSR, but was not a Warsaw Pact country. And I think that might be maybe the best that the U.S. can aim for in terms of where where Pakistan stands, and because the U.S. did play a role in making sure that Tito and and that Yugoslavia. After the Tito-Stalin split, that Yugoslavia uh, started to sort of pitch back towards the middle. It provided diplomatic support and economic and military assistance uh, and to keep Yugoslavia from falling under the USSR's sway. So I think that's an analog, that's a model, and that's an end state. But the, the path to get there, I think, is pretty complicated because right now, you could argue Pakistan is, is, is in pretty deep with, with China. Is there any one major action or effort that the United States should engage in vis-a-vis Pakistan? Is there any way that we can help Pakistan deal with some of its debt with China? Is there anything big that you think the United States should focus on that we're currently not doing? Well, I, I think we actually are doing a fair amount to help Pakistan's economy. And the problem is that Pakistan's economic actors or their economic leadership often makes bad choices. Um, so, I mean, after the the catastrophic floods that Pakistan experienced in, in 2022. I mean, there was a slew of U.S. leadership going out to the region, sort of rallying, trying to commit support for Pakistan to to address some of the, the flooding issues. I think USAID was a major actor in, in raising money for Pakistan. But but I'm not sure yet what, what are the other sort of the tools that the U.S. has left. has some still has some military influence and military uh, relations, and obviously there are still some capabilities that Pakistan relies on from the United States, although ultimately I think they're going to be uh, eclipsed by a lot of Chinese capabilities. But I think also a frank discussion with the Pakistanis about this might also be helpful, right? Having very clear communications with them about the consequences of what happens if Pakistan does, whether intentionally or inadvertently, enable Chinese power projection in the Indian Ocean and what that means for U.S. defense planning and strategy. Uh, maybe those signals have been sent, um, but I don't think there's enough of it, which is sort of part of the reason I wanted to write this report is to clarify for a lot of audiences what I think is seems to be happening under the surface. Great. Thank you very much, Samir. Thank you for this very insightful and comprehensive discussion 
both the China-Pakistan relationship, but also near the end where we were bringing in other actors, including looking at the U.S.-Pakistan relationship. Thank you again for joining us today. Thank you again for having me. I'm a big fan of the China Power podcast, and it's been a delight to be on it. Thank you. Thank you.